Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast that refuses to be restrained by the walls of history. We've ranged from ancient Rome to modern Washington, from Pompeii to Troy. And today we have one foot on the Great Wall of China and another on the US-Mexico border, because our subject today is walls and borders. Why do we seek to separate? Do walls work? Are they ever a good thing? Uh, Dominic Sandbrook is with me, and um, I want to start with a wonderful, simple question we received on Twitter from the excellently named Tom. <laughs> Tom asks, what makes a good wall? Dominic, what do you think? Golly, what makes a good wall? Well, I suppose it depends if you're keeping people out or keeping people in. So the emblematic wall that you and I grew up with is the Berlin Wall, right? That's the wall that we would have thought of for most of our lives when people make I'd have walls. thought of Hadrian's Wall. But Would you? <laughs> yeah. A man living in the past, yeah. I was much more interested in Hadrian's Wall than the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall, of course, is the, it's actually, uh, should probably be known as the anti-fascist protection rampart, which I think is yes. a great name for a wall. I mean, I think a wall yes. needs a good name. And the Berlin yes. Wall had a, had a great name. And it worked. That's the one thing people forget. I mean, the Berlin Wall was a monstrosity, but it actually did work in its purpose. Because, because it was set up to stop people from East Berlin fleeing into the Western sectors. Right. So about three million people had fled from East Germany to West Germany um, between, say, 1945 and 1961 when the Berlin Wall went up. And after 1961, I think that total fell to about 5,000. About 100 people were shot. So the Berlin Wall, you know, hideous as it was, was very effective, actually. But presumably also dependent on the existence of the Iron Curtain, so the frontier running right the way across Europe, dividing the Warsaw Pact from the NATO powers. Because if you don't have um, an Iron Curtain joining up to the Berlin Wall, you could just go round the corner of the Berlin Wall, couldn't you? And that's always a problem with walls is that well, I mean, <laughs> you know, they come to an end point and then you can just go round the side. <laughs> Yes, I suppose so. You're right that there was the Iron Curtain as well. So that, I guess, is, I mean, that's going to be a theme of the ep- this episode, isn't it? That walls yeah. and borders are often the same thing. Not always the same thing, though. So Donald Trump's wall is not actually really a wall. Most of it is a fence. And there was already, um, you know, a fence along the US-Mexican border. So what's his status now? He's going to, vi- I mean, as we speak, he's going to visit it. He's going to um, pay a sort of uh, farewell They've built a tiny bit of it, I think, and he's going to go and say how beautiful it is. Um, this is his great, great kind of legacy. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not a war, obviously. I mean, it's, it, was a, it was a ludicrous proposition that it was going to be a wall. It's a fence, and there were fences on the US border anyway. But the thing with walls and fences is even the Berlin Wall, some people can get over or under them. That's the nature of borders. People cross them. Unless, right. you know, unless you're talking about North Korea, in which case you don't cross that one. I mean, you get, right. you get shot. Yes, I mean, that, that is the kind of, essentially the iron rule that, that you can always break through a wall. But, and judging it by that standard, what, what would you say has been the most effective wall? 
Administrative barrier in history. And, uh, the, and the only reason I'm asking you that, of course, is because I've got an excellent answer. Okay. So that would say it would make me look good. So I would say the Theodosian walls. Do you know I've got I've got the Theodosian walls written down in front of me. They're actually one of my <laughs> of favorite you have. walls. <laughs> I don't think they're effective, but they're very They were very effective. They're built in the fifth century and they hold out till twelve oh four. I reckon that's that's a pretty phenomenal record. That said, if there's one city in the world that's famous for being <laughs> sacked <laughs> twice, yeah. it's the city behind yeah, the Theodosian Wall. I know, walls. but the poor Byzantines are surrounded by voracious yeah. enemies. And basically, this is the great legacy that the, the Roman Empire, it's, it, anyway, it's, it's still a great power, leaves the Byzantines, is this incredible fortification system that um, obviously the people of, of Ninth or... 12th century Byzantium couldn't possibly have afforded, but they have this incredible defensive system of walls that you can still go and see. I mean, if, you know, to, to walk around the walls of Constantinople is still one of the great things that you can do. So yeah. that, that would be my nomination. Um, but if you've got a better one, I'm, I'm No, it's a good to, choice. So yeah. you mentioned Hadrian's Wall earlier on, and we might as well get into Hadrian's Wall because I know you're itching to talk about it. And Hadrian's Wall is, I was there two years ago, and I sort of went in that sort of cynical state of mind where you, you know, you're expecting to be a little bit disappointed because you've, I went as a child and for, hadn't been for, you know, 40 years or something and was expecting, you know, to be underwhelmed. And it is an amazing thing, isn't it, Hadrian's Wall? Well, it depends which bit of it you're looking at. And I, I say this with some feeling because um, I've actually walked it three times. So I walked it when I was about 17. I walked it I was, um, when I just... Just after I got married, I persuaded my beloved to walk with me, and that almost ended our marriage because <laughs> we got lost. We got very badly. How did you get lost at Adrian's Wall? Because it was before they it was before they'd set up a national path. So I misread a map, and, and anyway, it, fortunately we're still together, but it was quite close. And then uh, about oh about seven years ago, I made um, the whole family do it, and the children were quite young, and I showed them it was going to be exciting. And of course, we. Um, you know, we, we set off from Wall's End and it just bucketed down with rain. You could never possibly have anticipated that, could you? No. And I've got <laughs> some very happy holiday snaps with the, the children sobbing in the kind of outskirts of Newcastle as the grey rain slices down, asking me why we couldn't have gone somewhere warmer. But I agree, it is Hadrian's Wall is 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 fantastic. And I suppose I you see, I think it I think for, for me it's the the archetype of the wall. I was what I always think of and i think it's it's fascinating because it we don't entirely know why why it was built um so the only the only detail we have from from classical sources there's it's it's written a source written about 250 years after the life of hadrian and it says the war was built to to, to separate the romans from the barbarians which right. is very kind of you know ambiguous <laughs> so is it is it built as an expression of strength so saying, you know, we've, we, we, we control you. Perhaps they whitewashed it to make it stand out. Perhaps it was um, kind of equivalent, you know, people had to present their passports to get through. It's, it's about making a massive statement of Roman power. Or is it built as an expression of weakness, in which case it's about keeping the barbarians at bay? And there's a kind of ambivalence there in the way that the walls are built. You know, that's true of the... the fortifications in china or wherever that's yeah. maybe even america that that is it is it, are you do you feel strong when you built it or, or, or do, are you projecting weakness but that's the ambiguity isn't it so that's the story of the great wall of china that you have to be a very rich and sophisticated society to build it but you don't build it unless you're 
worried about step nomads, you know, raiding you and sort of pillaging all your towns and stuff. And presumably that's the case with Hadrian's Wall, right? That it's it's both, isn't it? That you have to be the yeah. Romans to build it, but equally, if you were so powerful, you'd have conquered what is now Scotland. Yeah. We see, and, and what's interesting about the Great Wall of China is that the 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 idea that it's um, great is is basically a Western one. Um, right, it's interesting. I mean, you'll know this because it's Nixon. It's Nixon. I was Nixon. thinking about Nixon on the Great Wall. Because Nixon of China. goes, he, he says he, he famously, and, "This is a great wall," <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a great wall for a great people. Or something. Yeah, that's his famous sound. There's, right. a, there's, um, there's, <laughs> There's a br- there's a brilliant book. I don't know if you um, uh, by Julia Lovell on the yeah. Great Wall. Yeah, and, she, and, and apparently got that that phrase got rewritten by um, Chinese propaganda as he was meant to have said. It's a great wall for great people yes, that come exactly. from a great past, and it's and yeah. only a great people that built it again have a great future. And it's sort of endless greats kind of multiply. <laughs> Um, but I mean, it, the, the the Great Wall of China. You know, we think of it. It's basically a kind of showpiece. But that's because it's been it's been renovated, hasn't it? So what? So the bit that you go and see is actually just a very small bit. But I mean, ultimately, there was no one Great Wall of China that has lasted for thousands and thousands of years, and it, it seems to have, have kind of begun almost as a kind of gulag, as a as a, a kind of you know the first emperor sending people off to to work themselves to death in the the remotest corners of China. So that again is another kind of dimension of wall building is that it's an expression of, of autocracy. It's an expression of power. And those yeah. who do it are, you know, it's built with their bones. Their bones are kind of ground up to become part of the mortar. Isn't that sort of true of all grand projets, you know, yeah, I think it is. in history, yeah. isn't it? The pyramids and, yeah. you know, the people, it's not that sort of slightly tedious thing when you, um, when you're a child and you have a, you know, your parents have a friend who's a bit left wing like me and, uh, says, who built the pyramids? And you say, Oh, Ramesses or whoever it might be. And he says, no, it was built by thousands of slaves. And don't you forget it. I mean, that's a kind of standard. There wasn't slaves, was it? It was wasn't the- kind of Keynesianism. It was keeping, <laughs> giving everything something to do. During, yeah, the, well, uh, during yeah. the fallow period. So let's talk a bit about not just walls, but borders. Do you have a favourite border? Yeah. Oh, come on, what is it? A favourite border? Um, oh, I think the uh, the sea that encloses Great Britain. Oh, good choice, good choice. <laughs> but you see, we're only... Because natural borders. You see, natural borders, that's... But most borders aren't natural, that's what's so interesting. So there's a fantastic map online that you can... There's a website you can go to and there's a map and it tells you all the dates of every major... Well, not every major, every modern nation-state border. And the, by far the sort of plurality are 20th century. And actually, when you go back, there are very few that are... Um, older than about thirteen or fourteen hundred, so I think one of the oldest is Spain and Portugal, which is twelve ninety seven. Um, Spain and France is very old, but most of the others are pretty new. Well, so Scotland and England, Scotland and England. I mean, kind of yes. a century, and that, but that's sort of shifted a bit, hasn't it? That's always been a little bit fluid. Um, the Scotland, Scottish well, th- English. Well, it's kind of interesting. Hadrian's Wall stands in for the border between. Scotland and yeah. England, where it's, it's it's further south. And um, so there is this kind of idea that um, England is a natural inheritor of the Roman province of Britannia, uh, and Scotland is a natural uh, inheritor of the barbarian lands north of Hadrian's Wall. But that's not true at all. I mean, it's it's a kind of coincidence that the, the border tended to lie where it is. Yeah, interesting. 
What about the border between Wales and England? So that's kind of seen as the same as Offa's Dyke, isn't it? People yeah. that people use Offa's Dyke as a kind of I don't know really I don't know anything about Offa. Does anybody King of Mercia? Well, I think I mean I think with Offa's Dyke again you get this kind of um, the, the same ambivalence that you have with Adrian's Wall. Um, is is it an, a statement of royal power? I mean, it's an it is a statement of royal power because for uh, an Anglo-Saxon king to have the manpower to construct this enormous earthen dike, I mean, that's pretty impressive by the standards of the time. But at the same time, it's kind of an admission of defeat that you can't bring the Welsh to heel, um, and you've got to build this to stop them from raiding. So again, it's this, this same kind of uncertainty that you get with, I suppose, with you know. It's, in a way that's there with the Berlin Wall, isn't it? It's there with North Korea. Um, yeah. Is it strength or is it weakness? Yeah, if you're so great, you don't need a great wall. Right? But also, of course, walls stand in for, we just be mentioning this, walls stand in for natural borders. So for Rome, you've got the Rhine, you've got the Danube. Yeah. Um, so they, to a degree, provide natural frontiers. And I suppose the desert as well. I mean, you, the Roman Empire reaches its, its limit of natural expansion because southwards there's only the Sahara, um, eastwards and there's east, only east. barbarians. Well, well and then eastwards... You could, go, you could go east into sort of Mesopotamia, couldn't you? I mean, the Romans don't yeah, have you to could. stop. Um, yeah. And did yeah. That, was that border kind of fixed the Roman-Persian border? I mean, it presumably was a little bit... That must have been very fluid. Yes, it is because in in um, particularly late antiquity, there's, um, there's there is no natural feature there. So you essentially you have to construct massive frontier posts. And the story of the relationship between the Romans and the Persians in late antiquity is a constant process of of scrapping over key nodes of defence, which constitute yeah. the, the the border. But I suppose what you what you you have in modern history that you don't have in earlier periods is the sense of a, a solid, definite border i mean i think even hadrian's wall hadrian's wall is is um it's not a line drawn in the sand because roman power would be expected to project northwards you know troops would be expected to control frontier zone northwards and also southwards as well um and the, the history of roman defenses is that um to begin with you have the idea that that roman uh power is limitless that that empire is without borders this is the divine dispensation then you get the sense that you're going to kind of slightly build defenses along the line of the rhine and the danube or whatever then you have defense in depth and then you just give up because the whole thing gets swept away um so there are many different ways to have borders and i suppose moving into um into the medieval period and early modern period i mean borders are constant say poland i mean talk me through the borders of poland i can't even begin to wrap my head around that no, I mean, Poland is the famous one, isn't it? Because even in the 20th century, it changed multiple times. Um, and, you know, po- what is Poland now? What we all accept to be Poland would not have been accepted to be Poland in 1935 or 1900 when Poland didn't even exist on the map. Um, so those things are interesting. I mean, people often say that the borders are a product of the Treaty of Westphalia. So that's 1648, the treaty that ends the Thirty Years' War. And people see that, some people see that as the moment that sort of enshrines the, the nation state. But if you go back even further, so if you go back to when Spain and Portugal were carving up the new world, I mean, they had to get a, they had a deal brokered by the Pope, the Treaty of Tordesillas and then the Treaty of Zaragoza, which basically said, you can have this bit, we'll have this bit. There's such and such a parallel as the dividing line. So there was a sort of, I think once you've got maps, you've got borders. 
you know, once you can mm. write it down and draw it, then you've got a sense that this bit is ours, it is inalienably part of our realm, and that bit is yours. But what I don't have any sense of, and I've never really seen anybody explain it, is what happened if you decided to get on your horse and to ride across you know, Central Europe or whatever? Do you just keep going and nothing changes? Are they posts, gates? Are well, you conscious of the language changing and all this sort of stuff? I mean, in the context of, of the broadest context of Eurasia, that is the huge issue, isn't it? That you've got horse horse riding nomads and then you've got everybody else. Or in the context of, of the Middle East, you've got people on, on camels. Because yeah. actually the, the the very oldest wall, um, I, th- I think it's, it's excavated by French archaeologists and they just call it the, the Très Long Mur. So the TLM. <laughs> God, they couldn't think of a better title than the very no, long. It's, it's brilliant. It's, it's about, I think, about 170 miles long. It's in the desert of Syria. It's it's a kind of art, and it's it's clearly there to keep the Bedouin, to keep the, the the nomads out. And it's the kind of precursor of all those other walls, of which the right. defensive frontiers along the Roman, the Rhine, and the Danube, um, the Sasanian empires, the Persians, they have one from the the. Um, Black Sea to the Caspian Sea, um, China, of course, um, that there is this constant anxiety that if you build a great stable civilization and there are people out there on horses, you can come in and grab it. You've got a problem. The issue is there even with cities, isn't it? That the first cities, in a sense, yeah, have to, yeah. walls have to be there because otherwise people will just come and, and grab your stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's, well, a wall is part, an intrinsic part of a city, isn't it? And a border is part of... I mean, this is, I think, one reason why people get so hot under the collar about... Um, I mean, it's not the obviously the only reason, but it's one reason why people get very hot under the collar about migration, about kind of migration stories in the newspapers, is that a border is intrinsic to a nation-state. Um, it's a sort of nation-state sense of its own inviolability, um, that you have a sort of well-regulated border and that people can't sort of swan in and out. And that clearly is in a is a motive for a lot of people. I mean, that's why Trump got that success with the wall. And it's also, I suppose, I mean, if you're thinking about emotive walls and borders, think about Ireland or Northern Ireland specifically. So there you've got two different, you've got the the Irish, Northern Irish border, but you've also got the so-called peace walls in Belfast, um, which are walls to keep people apart, Catholics and Protestants. Have you done that tour in Belfast of all the sort of... I haven't, no, I haven't, no. I mean, it's extraordinary, you know, to because uh, you know, in lots of ways, Belfast looks like a, you know, you could be in a city in people. People will probably be horrified by me saying this, but you could be in a city in Scotland or Northern England or something, and you're driving along, and then there's this massive wall, this massive barrier that's keeping, say, the Shankill Road and the Falls Road apart, and they would have gates. Well, they still have gates, which are sometimes locked at night, so that people can't get in and out. Right. Well, that's, I think, a sombre note on which to end the uh, first half. We'll be back in the second half with some of your questions on walls and borders. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, A reminder that we've cracked up production while Britain remains in lockdown, two podcasts a week till February. So please do get in touch. We will always announce the subject of our next pod on Twitter. And we really do appreciate all your questions. Talking of which, uh, we'll be coming to questions in a minute. But um, before we do, Dominic, you had um, a particular theme that you wanted to bring up. Well, I thought of something that when we're talking about walls and borders, which is something we haven't addressed, which is enclaves. Mm -hmm. And they are so interesting. So one of the most famous ones is the city of Kaliningrad, which is um, a Russian enclave surrounded by basically what's now Poland, but what, what was East Prussia. And that's the city that was better known for most of history as Königsberg, city of Immanuel Kant. The, the Soviet Union took it at the end of the Second World War. They didn't give it back. They, they never will give it back. The population is now Russian. And there's this sort of outpost of Russianness now in an, what used to be a Prussian city in the middle of the European Union. An extraordinary thing. And of course, there are lots of enclaves all over the world. We just don't really know much about them. Well, I suppose West Berlin was an enclave, wasn't it? West Berlin was an enclave, exactly. So, I mean, how strange that was. West Berlin surrounded by a very hardcore, you know, communist East Germany um, for decades, you know, apparently fixed. Yeah, I I was tipped off about... um the peculiarities of the uh, the the original border between um, India and, and what ended up as Bangladesh, which of course right. was um, drawn by Sir Cyril Radcliffe uh, originally, who, who also did the the border between what becomes India and, and Pakistan. And it turns out there were loads of enclaves there that I think yeah. only got sorted out between Bangladesh and India, kind of like twenty thirty years ago. But this actually goes to the point that we were talking about earlier about borders, that most borders are quite recent because they've been constructed in the wake of the disintegration of empires. So when people yeah. were drawing borders, even in, you know, in, Europe, in Western Europe, um, so Austria's borders, for example, they had to have plebiscites at the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to decide what Carinthia 
be Austrian or would it be Yugoslav? Um, so the, the, there's always this sort of arbitrariness, and you have to have enclaves if you're not going to force people to live in, as it were, the wrong country. Um, and I don't know which is, I mean, probably enclaves are better, but you've just had a war in Armenia and Azerbaijan about the enclaves, yeah. um, about Nagorno-Karabakh well, and all that. I mean, one of the issues, I suppose, particularly in um, in areas of the world that um, haven't had the um, inheritance of the Treaty of Westphalia to you know, have a grain of custom to it, is that um, actually uh, empires are, are, are far more kind of representative of how power has been organised. And yeah. um, one of the advantages, I suppose, of, of empires is that you, you can have enclaves because you're all part of the same imperial... Right structure and and essentially in the in you know in the in the middle east that's empires have been the, the natural way of things going right the way back to the time of sargon of akkad um, yeah or the balkans i mean the balkans were roman they were byzantine they were ottoman they or austro-hungarian then that all fell apart and then you know people just started fighting about where they start and end but it's it's also isn't it um it's it's to do with the rise of technology as well and mapping as you mentioned yeah. before and essentially the ability to the to, to have accurate maps to draw lines on them and then to ensure that those lines are upheld so moving on to the question seamlessly we have one from <laughs> um paradoximorum that's an excellent name that's a um, great name uh, and he remembers during my masters i had to write an essay on the hardening of the world's borders it turns out that most of the world's borders have become more heavily guarded since the end of the cold war what do you think explains this? Well, this is a, a question for you, Dominic, but one thing that just hovers on my mind. Have you been watching The Serpent? No, the Jenna Coleman serial killing thing. Yes, yeah, so Charles Sobrage, who was um, a serial killer of backpackers in, in the 70s. Um, and the absolute tension about that revolves around the fact that um, there's no internet, there are no mobile phones, that he can take backpackers passports and then they've got no way of getting out um oh. and you can kind of you can you can take photographs out of a uh, passport and put another photo in and just use it as your own and you you realize how you know in 40 years how 50 years how radically uh technology yeah. has has hardened the ability of uh states to monitor who comes in and out of of their countries i've got a terrifying passport border story for you tom i once got an overnight train from Estonia to Russia. And as we were pulling into St. Petersburg, I realised that my passport had disappeared and I couldn't find it anywhere. That's not a good point. To find <laughs> it's terrible. You're an, you're an undocumented <laughs> alien entering Vladimir Putin's What year Russia. was this? It was about 2002, 2003, but they were in the middle of a huge panic because a lot of bombs were going off in Russia. They're in the Second Chechen War, as I remember. And, and so, Dominic, to be honest, you look like a Chechen terrorist exactly exactly and uh you know where it was so basically the sort of the 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 woman who took care of our sleeper carriage had come in and and done all the laundry she was desperate to get all this sort of laundry get all the bed sheets off and everything and she'd whipped up my passport and it was at the bottom of this massive laundry bag so you managed to find it i did i made a huge scene and oh, it was that you classic must thing it was that english thing of i thought is it worse to make a scene and embarrass myself in front of all the other passengers? Or should I just take the 10 years in the Russian prison? <laughs> <laughs> I 
but <laughs> I can see that's I a can, difficult one to, to weigh which I can console myself that at least I showed a stiff upper lip I hope you took the 10 years in prison no I didn't well, I didn't clearly I wouldn't <laughs> you cry you yeah. fall on your knees and sob anyway um, we actually haven't answered paradoxymoron's question at all so my answer to this question is, the, is as simple as migration migration has hugely increased and you know borders controls have increased with them with with migrant flows, don't you think? Yeah, but don't you think that they've, the borders have hardened because people can harden them? Yes, I suppose so. Um, you know, so now you have to give a f- fingerprint when you go into the United States or whatever, and you, you know, take endless photos of you and and all that sort of carry on, which they, I guess, they didn't before. You just had a sort of piece of paper and a man glaring at you across the desk. Yeah, you know, you can't go anywhere without without the right papers now. Whereas no. That's because we're so sensitive about migration, though, isn't it? It's big, I mean, that wasn't the case in 1992 or something when, you know, the, the phrase asylum seekers was barely used in the news and immigration into most European countries was pretty low. Don't you think it's a product of the anxiety about that? Yeah, yeah I suppose so. I suppose so, yeah. Um, but I think it's also about, you know, if the technology's there to uh, the, enable you to do stuff, then, then you do it, um, which brings us very neatly on to... Uh, another question from um, Amy Matravadi, who asked, perhaps a discussion of the Great Firewall of China. So well, this is the future is, walls, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. So this is the. That's a good question. So it's now. So now the issue is not you. You're keeping people out or in because that's keeping people out of China is not really a something that I imagine the Chinese are terribly worried about. It's more about keeping ideas out. So am I not right in thinking that there's some issue with Winnie the Pooh? In China, are you aware of this? That's right, yes, yes. Xi Jinping looking like Winnie the Pooh in the Disney film. And so Winnie the Pooh has been suppressed in some... I mean, this is clearly going <laughs> to get... He's a our, non-bear. He's a non-bear. This is going to get us our podcast suppressed in China. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, how, how effective is this? I don't know. Does it... I mean, only time will tell how well this well, works. I, I mean, think- clearly... It doesn't work with Lutheran ideas in the 16th century. It doesn't work with Enlightenment ideas or communism. You can't keep ideas out, I don't think. I think, I mean, I think it, the phrase, the Great Firewall of China, is kind of interesting because, you know, we're saying how, how the idea of the Great Wall of China is, is a, a essentially European invention. Um, yeah. Europeans start going there and having you know rhapsodizing about this amazing wall and then the chinese wake up to the fact that they've got this incredible thing and you start getting all these stories about how it's the only structure that you can see from the moon um uh, perhaps even from mars i think joseph needham said um and so the chinese become end up very proud of it and it becomes an emblem of their ability to protect their civilization yeah from the barbarians that, that that lie out there. Now, whether that was the original purpose of of these kind of various fortifications that collectively have come to be called the Great Wall of China, I I, I don't know. But I th- I think that the idea that China is the great centre of civilization, it's the Middle Kingdom, and you put a wall round it to keep the barbarians out. That is something that goes with the grain of Chinese national yeah. pride as it's evolved over over the past century, really. So maybe maybe that's a part of it. I think it is, and I don't. I, I think actually you're right, and that the if you talk to, to Chinese people about it, they, they they don't say, "Well, this is a sign of weakness and of our insecurity." They see it as, as you say, as a, I think they see it as a sign of this is who we are. We control what comes in and out. Um, 
it's a sign of our maturity and our um, that we're sensible that we don't let the internet become this anarchic free for all that you yeah. have in the West. That we want to have a sense of regulation, and of course, and maybe a- they've got a point. Well, maybe. I mean, who knows? I mean, we're speaking. This is a couple of who days knows? after Donald Trump's been kicked off Twitter. <laughs> yes. uh, no one in China is on Twitter, are they? They've they've kind of banned it. They've got their own. I think they have their own parallel things, don't they? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. They famous and notoriously, they haven't got rid of um, the president of Iran. So he's still no, who's still on Twitter? Yeah, he's still he's on busy Twitter tweeting. Um, well, here's a, here's another modern war. From um, I hope I'm going to pronounce this right. Um, Pepin Luca, um, the Israeli wall separating the Israelis from the Palestinians. How successful is it? Oh, yeah, thank you for asking me this very uncontentious question. Well, <laughs> um, I suppose you can argue it's it's ultimately successful only up to a point. I don't really know, and I've never been to Israel or, or indeed Palestine, so I don't really know. Uh, I don't have any first-hand experience on which to draw, but the, I mean the thing with the wall is you can build a wall, but the other people are still there, right? And the issue is still yeah. there; it doesn't it doesn't yeah. go away? So, I mean, an Israeli, you know, if you had an Israeli spokesman, they would say, "Well, it's improved improved security or whatever." But of course, the the prop the point I suppose for the Israelis is at what point does that wall become a greater problem because of the international PR damage? You know, at what point does it harm your cause rather than? help it i don't have an answer to that i mean again um as as it as in china so in um so, so in the near east there's a lot of history there so uh one of the towns in um palestinian territories is jericho which yeah possibly walls. has some of the most famous, famous walls walls. in the whole of history um and you know all over the near east you've got these kind of what are called tells so dust mounds that were once cities and uh you know we've got um the uh the, the very long wall as well out in out mm. in syria so you do i mean perhaps of, of more than anywhere else in the world um in that area of the world you, walls have an incredibly long history and i suppose that um you know the israelis that live in that live in the shadow of that kind of in, incredibly ancient history um oh well okay so Here's the next one from Ollie O'Brien, um, and this is something we've already touched on. When did borders become an actual thing? 1648 and the Treaty of Westphalia, or not until faster transport and more people travelling by train, an example being German unification, I suppose. I think. I mean, I think we've been kind of hovering around that question, really. Um, when you are have borders, borders, as we understand them now, definite lines with border posts, um, you know, satellite, absolutely determine where exactly these borders are when did we start getting the idea that, that they are definite lines on a map rather than just kind of vague areas of control kind of frontier regions i don't actually have an answer to that tom i think it's interesting he mentions train because obviously trains people some people argue trains invented time so train timetables yeah. invent a kind of national uniformity of clocks so every every station has to have the same time and all the rest of it um at what point i mean this is the thing that that puzzles me actually that genuinely puzzles me at what point are you on your horse and you're in france then you're in luxembourg then you're in you know one of the states of what becomes germany how conscious are you of it is there somebody stopping you and at what point is there somebody stopping you my guess is we're talking 19th century um 
but I don't I don't know. And when people did the grand well, tour, they didn't need to take loads of documents with them and they didn't have to stop and have their bags searched. I suppose travel was so expensive that if you were travelling, you were automatically assumed to be a, a millord and that meant money. <laughs> Maybe, so everyone would yeah. welcome you with open arms. Happy days when British tourists were... We're still welcome on the continent, yeah. but one—I well, mean, we're left with bags of marble. Coming coming from a very different angle is that perhaps one of the things that constitutes a border, say in antiquity, is the idea that the land is sacred. So in Athens and Attica, I mean, Athens is yeah. unusual in ancient Greece because it controls such a, a large quantity of territory. Um, and that territory is seen as being sacred. So the Athenians see themselves as being autochthonous, born from the soil. And you have to be buried in Athenian soil. And unless, if you know, if you are, are born from Athenian soil, then you are Athenian. There's no other way you can become an Athenian. So I suppose if you have a sense that the, that the, the earth itself is sacred, I, mean, I suppose, yeah. that's, that, again, that's part of um, uh, Israel as well, the idea of, of a promised land, a holy land. Um, with the Romans, you have a thing called the Pomerium, which is a, a sacred border that marks the sacral limits of the city. Um, so if you have a sense that land is sacred, then I suppose inevitably you, you probably have a sense of, of borders as well. But I'm not yeah, sure about that. So, something, to, something to... I mean, the sort, of, the, the sort of trendy thing to say, right, is that borders are always fluid and they're terribly interesting and they're much more interesting than non-borders and all the rest of it. But borders aren't always that fluid so i mentioned spain and portugal earlier i mean that border has remained pretty much where it is for i think 800 years and the people on either side in all that time have had a pretty clear sense of themselves we're portuguese you're spanish i mean there must have been well, a degree of fluidity. But, but, but they but they don't think they're spanish do they because within that border there well, I suppose that, are kinds of yes. other borders so the the borders between okay. you know yeah. what's going to become you know al-andalus and then valencia and castile and you know all these yeah no, i mean that's kind point. of shifting and changing so um yeah. perhaps you ha- uh yeah um so and the borders in south america right the borders in south america follow often the patterns within the spanish empire so the oh, administrative right. divisions you know, right. why is there Argentina and a, a Chile and a Uruguay and a, all these places? Often That's they follow Spanish. the administrative divisions of the Spanish Empire. And actually, Bolivar, when they, you know, in the great age of sort of independence fighting, he dreamed of a Grand Colombia, this big super state. And it, and it failed because the individual elites wanted to cling on to their borders. They wanted their little power bases. And the British as well. I mean, almost across the globe wherever there's some particularly thorny terrifying yeah. flashpoint it turns out that a british map maker yes been there, you know from northern ireland through although Israel, tom through... i always wonder I, I always i always think this is a great cop-out isn't it for people generations later to say oh it's the fault of those evil <laughs> and actually i i really need to go and massacre my neighbors and it's not my fault at all well, I, I, but I suppose the British and Spanish are coming from a continent in which the idea, these idea of borders, is taken for granted, and going to parts of the world where they're they're kind of rather alien ideas. And um, because Western power was so preponderant over the twentieth century, yeah, this idea was kind of taken for granted and is implicit in the United Nations and things. But it's actually it, it's expressive of an age of of um, of Western power that is in retreat now. So I don't know whether the the, yeah. the notion of a kind of Westphalian border will fade as well, don't they? No, that's a good point. And, to... and I guess, actually, one other point. There is a point. Maybe we British are too cavalier about borders precisely because we don't have one. Yet. 
that we may <laughs> if the Scottish independence vote goes uh, what I would think be, be the wrong way, but not necessary. Um, One for the Scottish. Okay, here's, here's another uh, question. Um, again, I hope I pronounce this right. Tim uh, Chiplowski. Chiplowski. Um, Chiplowski. Uh, what was the last functioning walled city and will they ever make a comeback? I don't know that. Do you? Um, so there are lots of walled cities still. Which function, but I mean, people don't besiege them. I suppose <laughs> is that is that what, is that what <laughs> yes. he's looking for? Um, uh, because how do you? Well, maybe maybe a city where the wall is 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 an important part of its uh, functioning. People aren't allowed in or out. Or I mean, there are walled cities, aren't there? Best walled city. I, I tell you, the, the Vatican city might be one. I suppose the Vatican has yeah. a wall, doesn't it? So that marks out the limits. I tell you, very. Have you been to? You must have been to Dubrovnik, Tom. That's a very. I mean, the wall. No, is, I've never been to Dubrovnik. Never been. No, so I, the wall it, is is a huge element of Dubrovnik's. So Dubrovnik, as you, is King's Landing from Game yes. of Thrones, and the wall is a huge element of Dubrovnik's appeal. Um, and the wall has actually both made and destroyed Dubrovnik in the sense that it's it's the reason people go, and because people go, it has become a sort of Disneyfied resort with mm. colossal cruise ships, which has leached it of its of its character. But in terms of walled cities, I mean that is the best walled city you'll ever go to. Okay, well, it's I, it's absolutely on my list, and you know, dreaming of a time where I can go and see it. But I would, I, my answer to that last functioning walled city would be the Vatican. So, okay, I, but I may have got that wrong because I'm not an expert on walled city. So, if you, if if anyone out there has a better suggestion, we'd we'd love to hear from you. But I was going to give you another question from AJ Bremner: Is a wall only a successful wall if it's guarded? Good question. Uh. Huh. Yes, I suppose it is. Well, if you're not guarding a wall, what's the point of it? I mean, there's there's an there's an interesting debate among Hadrian's wallologists about whether there was a walkway on the wall. I mean, you'd assume that there there were on the wall. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the soldiers can walk up and down the wall. Yeah, there's, it, it's it's a topic of massive debate. You know, archaeologists fall out about this. Then there must be thousands of books that are utterly erroneous and redundant, in which soldiers are looking out from the wall. Aren't <laughs> there? I mean, um, yes, yes. Surely, I mean, I must have read a thousand articles in which African soldiers are looking out over the wall, and well, this is a they're, well, they're they're in forts, so clearly yeah. they are serving a kind of defensive purpose. But the the wall is is seen as being more of a kind of you know, customs marker, or yeah, we talked said before, expression of power or something. Yeah, that it's it's not a platform for actually uh, defending against yeah. barbarians. So, so, to, I, so to use your Game of Thrones analogy, it's not people aren't wildlings aren't hurling themselves at the wall and being beaten back by. Is there any uh, evidence of that? Did anybody ever attack the wall, Hadrian's Wall? Yeah, we've got records of of, of people attacking it, going uh, going round it, uh, breaking through it. Um, so it must have had some kind of defensive purpose but the the question is whether there were soldiers kind of walking up and down it which is i guess the the stereotype of it that's what yeah. you imagine happened but it's it's much debated well i think we we must draw a line draw a wall. <laughs> under this i've got a wall un- i've got a wall for you tom do you know about the cottesloe wall uh, no i don't you know about the cottesloe walls in oxford so cheryl hudson tweeted us about this and i it's one of my favorite walls because this is very surprising to a lot of people. So these are two walls, basically, that went up in Oxford uh, in the 1930s to separate the middle class and working class areas. So basically what happened was a developer had the right to build a load of houses and he put up a spiked wall 
to deter people from the local council estate from trying to get in. And these walls stayed for about 25 years. And they were incredibly controversial. I mean, sort of people campaigned against them. I mean, 1950, they came down in 1959. So in other words, if you'd gone to Oxford in 1958, you'd have found a street where you'd walk along and there'd be a spiked wall in the middle of the street to keep the council tenants out. And this was legal? Yeah. Well, there were huge legal battles. It went on and on and the developers refused to take it down. And the council, you know, they kept finding loopholes so the council couldn't enforce it. Of course, a lot of That's people amazing. were hugely shocked by it, but the home local homeowners were all for it. They didn't want the. And this is only, this is only something that happened in Oxford. Yes, I think so. I mean, maybe listeners want to know of other such wars, but I think Oxford That's is confirms the, my darker suspicions of Oxford. Of Oxford, well, you're, you're a Cambridge yeah, man, aren't you? So you would, yeah, you not, would surprised. This sort of not surprised. <laughs> well, let's 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 draw a line under this whole sorry business. <laughs> Build a wall. End this podcast. Um, <laughs> Dominic and I are going to go off and do some sentry duty. Uh, Thanks very much for listening to us. We'll be back on Thursday. See you next time. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.